I did want to kind of, I guess, give my perspective as a as a neurotypical on the weather conversation. I think it's a lack of honesty because I think what you're doing when you're saying about the weather very often is you, you might as well be saying, listen, I've got fuck all idea what I want to talk to you about, but I know I want to talk to you for some reason because I'm sort of driven to socialise. That's what you'd be saying. I think you're um, right. I think you're right because um, it goes back to being a conversational connoisseur and I'm not going to do the voice again because that's, <laughs> I think it scarred my larynx. Yeah, um, <laughs> it sounded painful. So um, that's exactly it, talking for the sake of talking and Which avoiding avoiding awkwardness you know we are we are artists of awkwardness as autistic people you know so it's like cool you know we have those moments in which no one speaks and nts have to avoid that at all costs but you know i think you're in great company when you can just be with someone in silence and all silences don't have to be awkward. and i would much rather yeah if if i've i remember being i, I think louis so my partner him going to the mature student society in like his first year at uni and um, I went along with him and the majority of them were NT, so neurotypical. Um, there was potentially a couple that were p possibly neurodivergent, but I was quite happy. I wasn't happy actually, because I didn't want I'd rather not be there at all. You but I was quite happy to be just to the side, left alone and just listening to people having a conversation. But then neurotypical people don't like that. They feel like they have to draw you in and that you're, you're making them uncomfortable by not socialising. Whereas actually I was much more comfortable before they tried to get me to socialise and be part of the conversation. I was quite happy to just be left alone. Um, yeah. Although like I say, happier if I'd been at home. <laughs> it's when a lot of you know, trauma can set in for an autistic person, especially if you're a child and you are being encouraged to socialise with other children. It's like at that point, they're probably fine with being a part of the group if they can be a part of the group in their own way, which might mean just stimming on the sidelines and not speaking to people. They might still enjoy the company, but when they're expected to do as everyone else, that's when the trauma sets in. I wonder so, if a better, a better sort of, you know, better, a better way of summing it up would be that it's not that autistic people don't want friendships. They don't want neurotypical friendships. They don't want what non-autistic so, people would consider so, as a yeah. Sorry, yeah. So yes, I get, I get it. But then a lot of kids are driven to mask, so they may be tempted to adopt a communication styles that aren't inherent to them. You know, so it's it gets very complicated. It could be a sense that no, I'm resisting it. The, the more you make push me into being, you know, like everyone else, uh, the more uh, divided I feel. Or oh, I'm going to try and force myself away from my inherent communication style and adopt another, you know, that seems to be uh, more commonly used amongst other children. But even Just like little scientists watching other human beings as a teenager, when I went from, you know, knowing the same peers um, for like five years and then went into sixth form, I lost all, um, you know, I, I'd built some form of being able to connect with some of those peers not not many of them but because I'd known them for so long and then I remember sitting in a small group of girls that I didn't know and just watching them all and like not being part of the conversation but sitting in there you know I was part of the circle as it were and just sitting there thinking how are they doing this like I, I have nothing to say I have nothing to contribute I don't know why I don't know how to do this you know that kind of thing and that's a horrible place to be when you genuinely just want to be like 
I'm interested in this thing. Can we talk about this thing without you looking at me like I'm weird, without you, um, you know, telling me that you don't, you're not interested in this thing or something along those lines. And we still see that, um, you know, so the, the allowing an autistic person to be authentic means that, so I run um, a social group for university, autistic university students, as well as a, a structured support program. Harry and um, Simon have just started a academy social Sundays for particularly lonely autistic people who really need to connect with other autistic people. And you still will have autistics in that space that don't communicate. So they don't use audio, they don't use their camera and they don't and use the chat fine. box. And they're so, absolutely, I said they're and they're absolutely fine to just sit there. I think what's scary is, and I'm, believe it or not, I'm situationally mute. There are some situations where all of that, you know, erratic, brain dribble doesn't happen and I, I guess it's because people expect me to be on all the time I will be encouraged and prompted to say more and what I'm fearing in those moments is please don't make me talk please don't make me talk please don't make me talk so sometimes it's nice to be able to be mute in a situation and people just honor your um I was going to say preference for mutism but just the honor the fact that hey cool speak when you want to even i remember going to an autistic focus group about autism focus group about a, a month a year and a half ago and i wasn't speaking during the morning session i can't remember why i mean i think i just wanted to absorb you know the group and people were coming up to me saying oh are you okay do you need us to help you to make contributions and i thought fuck off you know like if i want to speak i will one thing that I notice is a trend in infantilizing and patronizing autistic adults. Treat us like autistic adults, not like children. And I just want to pick up on, because Harry said it a couple of times, um, to help with sort of understanding language and um, narrative and the culture, actually, of um, autistic culture, is Harry keeps correcting himself on occasion going, well, actually, what I mean is autism research, not autistic research. Um, and that's because autism doesn't exist. It's an abstract concept. So and it's kind of you've got a culture of autism, which is Harry's been cute. Um, so you've got a culture of autism, which tends to be non-autistic people who are talking about autism as an abstract thing like it's attached to a person as opposed to talking about the embodied experiential sort of life of an autistic person. So there's a very big difference between autism research, um, which like you say, will be largely non-autistic people who are really just talking about an abstract concept versus autistic research, which will be hopefully led by an autistic researcher and will be more about the lives of actually autistic people as opposed to the concept. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you've got you've got to combine the objective and the subjective to get a good view. And lots of autism, well, most most autism research is based on objective observations. It, it can't be subjective because it's not delivered by the autistic person, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, it's my subjective view about what I'm seeing in that person. But I'm not if I'm not listening to or hearing what that person is saying then it's it's kind of invalid I suppose you, you see it all the time as well on Twitter like the autistic community and the disabled community talk often and they'll um review research so some really great people on Twitter like Anne Mehmet who will um 
nearly daily dissect in a few threads uh, or in a thread sorry um a piece of research that's been done and oh no lost my train of thought help Sorry, pants <sighs> oh, but no. that's probably not helpful they need dissecting too i know i've lost it <laughs> can you send me the link to his twitter or her her twitter well, i think they're um um, pronouns are, are feminine. Um, Anne, so A double N and Mehmet, M E double M O double T potentially. And you'll know, you'll just look if you look through their um, feed, it's a lot of, like I say, you'll see um, them talking about other, like talking about research. Um, oh, that was where my point was going to be. So you're quite right, is that sadly a lot of autism researchers. They just don't ask autistic people. So I get frustrated if I see a study that's about eye tracking and why autistic people don't, well, people with autism in quotation marks, don't make eye contact. And it's like, you could ask us and we mm. could actually tell you what it feels like. We could tell you what our brains are doing. And it's different for a number of autistic people, but there might be a common thread. And what you'll see is the autistic community and disabled community sort of laughing, but not obviously in it's not funny, funny, but right. about, you know, they'll see a piece of research where it will say, um, we realised this from this study. And it's like, well, duh, you could have, you, we've known that for years. You could have just asked us instead of wasting time and energy and money mm. on a piece of research. Or you could have made the research stronger if you'd actually brought in autistic people. And that's why the double empathy, double empathy problem by Damien Milton is one of the strongest theories about autistic experience. Not that we're disordered or broken and we don't have a deficit in communication. We just have a, an interaction translation issue with non-autistic people and they with us. They, right? which they have to, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, and that, what, that's what makes it a double empathy problem because it's not just the autistic person who can't empathise. We empathise relatively well with other autistic people. Um, generally speaking, obviously, it depends on the, who you're interacting with as an autistic to autistic. Um, but when you look at the non-autistic derived theories of autism, they all have um, in extreme limitations and they don't explain enough of all autistic experience. And that makes them really poor because they don't have that subjectivity. They're not actually looking from the inside out to explain autistic experience. I think the double empathy, you know, and, you know, I've, I've looked into it since hearing about it on, on Academy, which we haven't talked about enough, um, but, you know, we can come back to that. But I think I totally agree with it, but I think it lets us off the hook a little bit. And by us, I mean, you know, someone who's, who's not autistic. Because, like you said, there is a, it's, it's hard for a non-autistic person to um, even imagine how an autistic person sees the world. But it's not hard to try. As in, it's yeah. not hard to listen. It's not hard to actually believe when someone says, you know, uh, again, having worked with lots of young people with autism and a PDA profile, to actually understand that because people such as yourself, Harry, are saying, look, when you place a demand, it's, it's I go into a survival instinct. I'm yeah, I have having... to use those kinds of analogies to really mm. hammer home the points. And there's reasons to believe that actually autistic people, adults especially, understand the neurotypical world more than a neurotypical person understands the autistic world because mm. the onus is not on the uh, is, is not on the neurotypical person to navigate our world because they're the majority 
so that we have more of an incentive to navigate you know the the neurotypical psychological landscape and i think that's interesting that sam you say the double empathy problem sounds like it lets non-autistic people off the hook because i would think the opposite because it's basically trying to say the issue is not solely on the autistic person's side there's an interaction like say trans translation issue which means that non-autistic people have to work so they need to start working harder because they haven't been to understand us so it's interesting that you could potentially see it as yeah maybe i didn't articulate that but I, I guess what 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 it means because again i think empathy is one of those words that's such a big word and people assume that you have it oh yeah i've got empathy because i you know, I, I care about this and care about that. But actually, for me, true empathy is understanding I can't see another person's point of view entirely, but I can try and I can listen and I can, you know, perspective taking. Take, yeah. Um, and I guess I guess the only reason I, I was sort of thinking it maybe would let let us off the hook a bit is because it's kind of saying, well, it's just hard to do that. So, you know, it's hard for you to see an autistic point of view, which it, it definitely is. Yeah, but there's still not enough perhaps I, I think what's frustrating is there's lots of us who we exist and there's lots of advocates that are e explaining what it feels like from the inside out so I guess it's more again about non-autistic people searching us out and taking us up on our offers to train to explain yeah. our free videos to explain what it feels like on the inside um and then the frustration that sometimes we have is that people will say well you're not like my child and it's kind of like well no because I'm a 36 year old woman um so no I'm not like your child but I was a child once which is back to the webinar why Harry and I start off and, and Molly's is pretty much about Molly growing up as an autistic PDA um, person and Harry and I start off um, we've got 20 minutes each talking about what it was like for us growing up so that you can actually go oh that's really like my child and things like that because people will they do they'll look at us and go but you're an adult it's like yeah but your child will become an adult and they'll also do the thing of well my child is non-orally speaking or non-traditionally speaking and it's like but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't help translate it might not be perfect but I think it will be a damn sight better than a non-autistic person who who doesn't have that sensory processing difference mm. to help translate. Because I can definitely, with a non-traditionally speaking person, go, oh, you see that little movement? I think they're feeling this because I do that. That's a really good point, you know, because we kind of have a broader sense of knowing what it is to stim and knowing what it is to autistically communicate. So even if the uh, superficial manifestation of that differs wildly, like a person who might, who one might describe as very articulate versus a person who doesn't make a single peep. The very articulate person may recognize recognizable forms of communication in the person who doesn't speak, the nonverbal person, you know? So it's, um, you know, we can, we, we, have a, we have a kind of uh, unspoken, invisible yet tangible connection you know to it just to build on that then can i ask a, a provocative question that i don't even know if i want to know the answer to but i'm going to ask it anyway <laughs> um so as someone who has spent their career working with autistic children and young people and then now has a job in 
delivering training, webinars, information to parents of autistic children and young people. And as someone who is now discovering more and more the importance of autistic experience and listening to autistic adults, should I just fuck off out of the way and get a milk round? So that well, we have this, you know what we have this conversation. Well, we had this conversation recently on my page, um, and I, I put it, I put it across to my um, my viewers, and um, we had some interesting answers. You know, some people would say yes. You know, to the answer in answer to that. You but didn't I literally think- asked, should Sam fuck off and get a milk round? Though, did you? That's not what. That's not the question you're asking. Not literally, <laughs> um, but like, what was I going to say? It's, uh, I think, but what you're doing is really res- respectable. And I, I think if I thought that you should fuck off and get um, a milk round, is that what you said, milk round? Yeah, do yeah. they even still exist? Um, no, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. So what even is a milk round? I think what you're doing, you're... Oh, Molly's, Molly's never probably had milk delivered. I did. I caught, oh. the, I caught the tail end of it. Oh, Yeah. Um, okay, so the fact that you are coming to us, not because we're us, but because we're autistic people, is commendable. You know, if you weren't doing that and you were kind of just basing your career on furthering a medicalized and archaic uh, version of autistic theory, then we, we'd probably be, be inclined to say, look, what you're doing is not only unhelpful but probably damaging for the community but no you're here and if you're passionate about getting insider information out there then consider yourself our mercury mr mercury <laughs> don't show him naked what do you mean what your mercury I'm, what, messenger, in... messenger of messenger of the gods autistics gods same thing. Uh, yeah yeah okay, okay. It's because of the Freddie Mercury doll. I was confused. All right, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear because I don't, I don't fancy doing a milk brand. Well, we do need decent allies, and I think the fact that obviously you're then bringing us in to work and do things as well, as well as learn from us and and things like that, is really important because obviously there will be a number of people, trainers, and things like that who just don't do that. And like Harry says, they just peddle the same sorts of nonsense um i did um I, i've delivered training on neurodiversity specifically uh and mental health stigma reduction for about seven or so years and i was doing some training with a small group a while back and it they all basically attended just for the final session of my short course because they all had like either autistic children or um were like teachers or educators of autistic um, people and there was this lovely, lovely mum, and I really wish I'd got um, their details, um, who'd said they, so they had a, a, an autistic son with quite complex needs. Um, he was, I think he was about 14 or 15 at the time. And she said he was over six foot and he was over 20 stone. He was a big, big lad. Didn't communicate um, particularly traditionally, but did communicate in his way and things like that. Um, and she would take up any training that she possibly could. She also worked as a, I think, a TA. And so she was really immersing herself to try and understand how to support her son and potentially the people that um, she supported as a TA. Um, and at the end, she said, you know what, I've been to um, 
one of the large autism charities in the UK, which I'm sure everyone can guess. Um, you know, I've done I've done their training. I've got done university trainings when it come up and I've done all this kind of thing. And she said they all teach the same thing. She said, you are the first person who's taught me something different that's actually useful. Um, and I'm not I don't do that to like toot my own horn. The point being, I could give her insider perspective. I also had a different mum who has um six children five who are of whom are diagnosed autistic and um a number of them have also complex needs and one of her older teenage um, daughters had repeatedly said they wanted to shave their hair off because they hate hair for sensory reasons and the mum who is also likely autistic was like oh no you don't want to do that we like your hair and all this kind of really really long hair and me explaining in that session um, about why I shaved my head for sensory reasons she then went home and allowed her daughter for the first time to shave her head because she completely then realized it was more than just not liking hair it was so much more important than that it was sensory discomfort constantly and things so you know sometimes if you don't have that insider perspective things don't change you know you can't have change um I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things because I made some notes because we get distracted and then I'm like, <laughs> well, you, cause you said about empathy. I just wanted to be clear that there are arguably different types of empathy. So that's where it gets, um, it gets watered down and people will just say, hold on, hurry. And people will just say um, lacks empathy. And it's like, okay, what type of empathy are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, effective, which means emotional empathy? We're actually autistic people. We have it in spades. Largely. Obviously what? that's, that's... Have you read the empathy and balance hypothesis with uh, Adam Smith? I will have a look. It's similar thing. It talks about cognitive and emotional empathy. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, this sorry, is. Sorry, Carol. Like, Harry's oh, going to go on, Harry. Go on, Harry. Um. So yeah, what? <sighs> That's the thing. This is what the double empathy problem is describing: flawed cognitive empathy. Um on both sides. So flawed cognitive empathy in the autistic person when it comes to understanding neurotypical people and flawed empathy within the, um, the neurotypical person when it comes to understanding the autistic person. So yeah, effective empathy is emotional empathy, which is you know the tendency to feel and share the emotions of other people. And then cognitive empathy um, allows you to uh, detect understand the emotions of other people you know so that's the a situation in which both sides will falter so a, an autistic child is having a meltdown and the neurotypical person might say they're being naughty right so this oh, demonstrates okay. a lack of cognitive empathy neurotypically speaking or you know you can have a very traditional example of an autistic person can't understand why another person is crying in a given situation, you know. Um, and then there's compassionate empathy, which is the ability to step forward and sympathize, you know. Do something. Nice. You can have flawed emotional empathy, you know, that's 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 the psychopathic model. No emotional empathy, no emotion. but completely intact cognitive empathy. So the tendency to know how to manipulate emotions by a really profound understanding of them, but without feeling them at all. Mm. And then we've got the complicated um, 
issue that a number throughout the autistic community have elixithymia um, or experience elixithymia in some ex to some extent. So I was going to ask about that. Yeah. yeah, difficulty or inability to um, understand, recognize or even feel emotion. And it really differs from person to person. Um, elixithymia. I'm not particularly elixithymic, but my partner is. So he will just... He, he seems to just have like two emotions, which is just extreme happiness or swearing at the computer because he's lost or he's angry with the people that he's gaming with. Um, but sometimes I'll say, are you OK? Like, I'll notice that there's something off and he'll be like, yeah, I'm fine. And then maybe a day later he'll go, I think I'm depressed, but he's not able to figure that out for himself and I, I've definitely worked with a number of autistic people with quite extreme elixithymia that they don't recognize that they're smiling for instance um, so they can't recognize that physical but it's not that they don't necessarily not have emotion and they're not psychopaths in quotation marks either it's 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 a little bit more complicated than that and when I say extreme elixithymia there's no kind of there's no judgment there um, there's it's not to say that it's bad to have extreme lixothymia it's just something it just means you have to work with them differently to check that they're not distressed for instance it would kind of be the opposite of psych psychopathy wouldn't it because you'd have an over responsive emotional state but without um as much uh, cognitive empathy to describe it recognize it express it whereas psychopathy is the opposite really isn't it it's the it's the understanding of other people's emotions and how to manipulate them manipulate, without yeah anything. there's none of there doesn't tend to be that without, without feeling it. That's the thing. A lot of autistic people will tell you. Sometimes I find it hard to tell when someone else is upset. But by the time I've worked it out, I have a lot of empathy for them. It's overwhelming. And you can consider a person, um, you know, th this is a, a new kind of slant on things. But you can consider the autistic person who is considered not to have empathy. Actually, they could have so much of it that they, they can't actually tolerate being in a situation where people are crying they cut they don't have the cognitive empathy to understand why but they know that people are crying and they kind of take it on as a sponge so they might not be able to deal with being around people who are i'm not very good with people who are crying and things like that i don't know what to do in that situation but i will so i'll just go to the logical um almost in the gender stereotype of of how a male and again, this is a stereotype, so I'm not saying this is actually the case of not knowing what to do and just going to the logical, how do I fix it? So that is my sort of go to. But I do feel empathy and sympathy for them. I just don't know how to respond emotionally in that situation. It's quite difficult for me. Because um, so again, it's probably another example of where if we try and say all autistic people have this, that yeah. itself is a mistake straight yeah. away. But I'm just, I mean, just to summarise the, the the empathy and balance hypothesis, which again, terminology wise, I already don't like because mm -hmm. why is it an imbalance? You know, yeah. who, who judges what's good and bad about empathy? Um, but it talks a lot. It talks about mirror neural activity, mirror mirror neural activity. Being, uh, the mirror neuron theories. Okay. Yeah. So th there's a bit of there's a bit of sort of neurological research in there about responsiveness of that being higher. In the autistic people they studied but again autistic experience comes in and just kind of gives a much better insight and there's a there's a lady in in the paper that says uh the, sometimes the reason i don't give you eye contact is if you're feeling sad i will then feel sad and i don't want your emotions and i don't know if is that something that any of you guys would connect to 
to some extent I mean my reasons for not making eye contact is because I'm very visual and I can't picture the pictures in my head if I'm concentrating too much on that sensory input so I'm better off if I can stare at a blank wall because then I can see the pictures better but not everybody who's autistic some autistics are um quite have aphantasia where they don't see in pictures at all so they have different reasons for not making eye contact that's crazy and then that's the thing we can experience a sense of um in inter internal oh sorry i'm, I'm getting low on spoons now um in it's been, been a long time <laughs> you know that the aphantasia thing is crazy to me but like, i have no idea how that could work i was we were in a situation recently e- edit this out if i'm not meant to mention this um where Chloe and I were speaking to a person who is aphantasic and they couldn't understand a word I was saying because I speak speaking metaphors metaphors constantly and I use very kind of indirect not indirect language but I don't want to say vague either but I often won't go to describe something as it is I'd rather metaphorically it's very visual yeah encapsulate something and they were just and I've, I've noticed, oh my gosh, I've really got to modify everything I'm saying so as, so as to be palatable to this person. And, I mean, and understood, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Molly? Harry's, Harry's nearly done. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, um, what, is there anything you wanted to say, Molly, quickly? Or, well, not quickly. But... I think I'm similar to Chloe when it comes to my reasonings for not making eye contact. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm talking to someone... Making that eye contact for me, it's like they're staring at me and waiting for me to say something. So it makes me really uncomfortable. And then I can't say anything. So for me, whenever I'm talking to someone, I'll perhaps just stare at the wall in the background or something. I just hate people looking at me. But but I'm obviously at a stage, to be honest, I've been at this stage in my life, even before I knew I was autistic, where I won't even pretend to make eye contact. Like it's kind of tough if that person doesn't like it. I really don't care it's too it's too energy consuming to pretend and concentrate too much on am I looking like I'm looking at you Mm. whilst also trying to pick apart the things I want to say Um, I already lose my trains of thought if I get distracted by something because then my brain is thinking about those things that are distracting me and not what I actually wanted to say Um, so I don't I you know I don't even pretend I will just you know the person will be there I'll definitely be like so you know you know it's just the way I'm going to communicate. The I'm only, just... no, no, no. <laughs> the only time I'll try to make eye contact is if someone's really distressed and we're having an emotional conversation. That's the only time because they're distressed and I want to make them feel more comfortable. That's mm. the only time I'll put myself in that situation. Though other times I just stare off into space. Yeah, I can't keep my eyes still. That's my thing. If I'm in a flow state and I'm talking to someone, I'm quite good at giving eye contact. But when I'm listening, I like to look aside because there's too much sensory information coming. It's like I either listen to them or I look at them. I can't do both. So I'm, I'm, I might do. Yeah. Whenever so- Harry, Harry listening, I'm like, yeah, but I can I can only do this. When Harry WhatsApp calls, it slowly, slowly, slowly ends up being just an image of his earlobe. And that's so it starts with the face. And then throughout the conversation, I'm just like, hello, Harry's earlobe, because, you know, he's he's turning it so that he can concentrate more um, on what's been said as opposed to any anything else. Yeah. There was just two last things just to give you, as it were. Hello. And um, so there was um, 
people trying so so on twitter today there were people talking about the issues with a number again of of some of the theories that are still floating around regarding autism um as opposed to autistic experience and somebody was talking about the intense world theory so how you know we are living as autistic people in an intense world so that's going to explain a number of our um experiences um so that's something that potentially might be quite interesting um so the double empathy problem and intense world theory opposed to um in in rejecting of the autism theories um and the other last thing I wanted to mention is um, about that translating thing, because I thought of an example. So I remember, like I said before, that sometimes, not all the time, actually, I'm, I'm quite lucky, Touchwood. You know, I hear lots of negative um, stories online from other autistic people where um, parents and things have been quite mean to an autistic adult because you're, you know, you're not like my child, all that kind of thing. I never tend to interact with those types of parents and I think that's because if they come into training of mine it's because they want to hear what I have to say they want to try and understand their child better or their you know young person better and things so actually I've had relatively good experiences with parents um, and I remember when I first started doing advocacy um, work as a openly autistic person it was with Annette and we were at a brain festival um, in Folkestone, which actually was quite lovely. And we were on a panel. So there was Annette and I were the autistic panelists. And then there were a couple of parents um, or three parents with uh, autistic teenagers with quite high support needs. Um, and one of them didn't orally communicate. So there was no traditional communication there. And I remember Annette was describing something that she experienced, which was about what we've talked about, which is going in into a room and there's other people there and potentially they've had like a, an argument or something. And she gets dis distressed because she doesn't know whether those feelings are hers or not, because she can pick up on it. And that, like you said before, it's I don't want to take on your feelings and then get confused. Are they mine? They're distressing feelings, all that kind of thing. So she was describing this and this parent of um, one of the teenagers went, you have just translated something that I'd been wondering about with my own son. So while, you know, his son never was able to orally communicate his inner world the dad had like picked up on some behaviors, but couldn't explain them because he wasn't autistic. He didn't know, he couldn't perspective take. Mm. And Annette managed to translate something and he could put, put the dots together, you know, he could line things up. And that was really important for him because he was listening to an autistic adult who for all intents and purposes was nothing like his autistic son, you know? But we are, we have connections and we have similarities, which is what connects us all to three dimensional space that we all occupy. You know, we're all individuals, we're all unique, but we share the same stuff. It's just arranged differently within our psyches. Exactly. So, yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that. So we can be quite good, not always because everybody's so different, but we can be quite good at explaining and translating. Mm. Fantastic. Um, okay. It's, I think we might have to do this in two episodes, to be fair, because uh, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. But we've been, I think we've nearly done two hours. 
Yeah, I'm re- I'm dangerously low on spoons. Okay, Harry. Well, we we will. <laughs> I've noticed you've gained more and more erratic as the yeah goes on. on. I started off in a fairly erratic mood, and now I'm just yeah. I think well, this, we can... this blue tack is soft as shit. These I can Sam, tell it's game bad when even knitting isn't helping me. Yeah, Sam, you're not NT. Don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> diagnosed you as um, a yellow circle. And yeah. That, that's um, the most accurate um, diagnostic procedure known. I green I don't understand how it's a circle. I've got such a sort of blocky it's head. It's got nothing to do with that. It's really interesting, <laughs> Jessica Synesthesia, because Harry's got a theory that isn't it that ADHD, so attention differences, people have a particular cut, particular types of colours and shapes? Oh, no, it was more. I've noticed a pattern in because you um, believe that you could be ADHD. Um, well, and I've know, noticed a pattern in, as you know, she, Jessica didn't say circle. She said you're just yellow. And my mum's just yellow, too. Or I think you're just a shape. You're either just a shape or just a colour. And I thought, oh, OK, the okay. non autistic neurodivergent seem to be following a pattern and molly and i are both green rectangles and we're both pda so that's really be... strange though because my favorite color is green as well my yeah, favorite color is green but i'm a red square it's very disappointing <laughs> i will admit watching you guys play your fidget toys i have just ordered some because yeah molly i was like you i i resisted it i thought no autistic culture i'm not going to be a part of that either but now i'm like oh god i'm drowning in skin toys i can't get enough of them i need rehab quick but again, I think it's trying to reclaim that language and things as well, which is why I keep calling them STEM tools now, so that we're not infantilized. Yes. Yeah, tool, tool is suggestive of work. Toy is suggestive of play. When you're doing something that you have to do, it's work. And when you're doing something you want to do, it's play. So I'm going to stick with toy. Okay. I'm, I need this. This is, it's not playing for me. It's, it's play is a, mandatory. It's me. a tool. But but this what is about, I mean, because I've got blue tack, so no, I don't have to sort of um, label it as such because it's blue tack, but I'm doing exactly the same thing. So maybe it's just something you have and you do, you know, oh, why do we have to? Yeah. I don't know. You also have a gramophone. So it's nearly done. <laughs> yeah. It's nearly done. All right, I've got to go because I'm, I'm about to... Okay. Like, well, no, it's, you it's, can, it's not the ending now. I'm about to do a turd on the windowsill and jump out. You can definitely tell Harry's state because his hair, it depends whether he looks like right now, he looks kind of like... Yeah. <laughs> but I just want to hang on until he does a turd on the windowsill because that would be crap. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> moving the slowly turning the camera. Okay. It's time okay. to go. It's time to go. Bye can all. This, can this suffice? Mm. If my turd looked like that, I'd be very concerned. Very. Concerned. <laughs> I'd be very happy. I'd be like, oh wow, really? I get to keep it and love it after I. Why like you it. name it? It's probably um, a smell turd bird. Okay, goodbye. <laughs>